Welcome back to Avery After Dark. I'm your host, Avery Ross, and today we're talking about an unsolved disappearance. I myself get really invested in unsolved cases because there's still that big question mark. And it's kind of like you have a bunch of puzzle pieces laying in front of you and you are determined to be the one that can put it all together. Today's case is the unsolved 1995 disappearance of TV news anchor Jody Husentrout. Jody was 27 years old and lived and worked in Mason City, Iowa. And if this sounds familiar, I did a short little summarized video on this case on my TikTok a couple months back, and I think it was actually one of the first cases I ever covered on Avery After Dark, but there's so much more to the case than I was able to fit in and include on TikTok, so let's break it down. Jody Husentrout was born June 5th, 1968 in Long Prairie, Minnesota. She was the youngest daughter and really excelled at golf in high school, so she was quite a little athlete. She went on to St. Cloud State University and began her broadcast career at the CBS affiliate KGAN in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Jody was a really cute, bubbly, driven, hardworking girl. She had worked her way up in the network news world, which, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a pretty competitive world. After college, I think you usually have to move to a pretty small town to report, and you really have to like pay your dues for years, and not that it's not like that in every field, but I think especially in network news, the hours that some of these anchors get are pretty rough, like waking up at like two or three in the morning and then having to kind of catch up on your sleep all day long is, um, yeah, kind of a definitely a pretty competitive, intense world. But Jody was a hard worker and really put in the time. She hopped around a bit at a few stations and landed at KIMT in Mason City, Iowa. And she had a really busy social life. She had lots of friends and was at a really exciting time in her life and career. You know, at 27, it's it's a really interesting age. I think you kind of, you've learned a lot of lessons from your teens and your early 20s. And I think you're really kind of finding out who you are in your late 20s. You know, and I'm, I'm 30 years old. So I think I've really took a lot of the lessons that I learned in my early 20s and mid 20s. And I feel like I'm almost kind of a different person now. So I think it's 27 is such a good age because I think you're really kind of starting to get some confidence. You're usually kind of building or have built somewhat of a career at that point. So I think she was probably just at a really exciting time in her life. The evening before her disappearance, June 26th, she participated in a golf tournament in town. And by all reports from other attendees there, she was Jody per usual. She was friendly, bubbly, had a nice time, and then left later in the evening. 
So Jody reported the morning news. So she, along with a producer from the station named Amy Coons, would put on the AM newscast together, the two of them. And if either of them would accidentally oversleep, the other would call and make sure the other one was up. So they kind of had a good dynamic um, professional relationship. And this would happen time to time. And I don't doubt it. Those really early call times, it's so easy to hit the snooze button and then lose track of time. At 4 a.m. on Tuesday, June 27th, 1995, Amy got to work and began getting ready for the newscast. Time passed and she noticed that Jody hadn't shown up at the station for work that morning. Jody usually arrived around 3.30 a.m., so Amy calls Jody's apartment. And Jody answered and said, Oh, she overslept. She sounded kind of groggy on the phone and said, okay, I'm going to get ready and I'll be at the station in just a few. Jody's apartment was pretty close to the station, so she would usually kind of just grab her things and leave her apartment and then get ready at the station, which I think think is a pretty common thing for uh, news anchors to do is they'll kind of come in the station, get their stories ready and then um, do their hair and makeup and stuff before they get on on air, before they go live. But 4 a.m. passes, and then 5 a.m. passes. And it's now 6 a.m., and Jody still hadn't arrived. So Amy filled in for her on the morning news show and then called police, because at this point she's not sure what's going on, but I think at this point she's kind of Something's not right. When police arrived at Jody's apartment, they find her red Mazda Miata in the parking lot. And there was evidence of a struggle near her car. There appeared to be drag marks along with Jody's things. Her red high heels, a hairdryer, a set of earrings, hairspray, as well as a bent car key. And... All of these items were strewn about outside her car. So at this point, it's obvious to police that this is a crime scene and suggested that there had been an abduction. Police investigate and recover an unidentified palm print from her car. And they start talking to neighbors of Jody's apartment complex and you know, try to start putting together, getting information. Did anyone see anything? Did anyone hear anything? And they did. Several of the neighbors told police that they heard a woman scream around the time that Jody went missing, but unfortunately, no one called for help. A nearby neighbor also reported seeing an unknown white van with its lights on and engine running around the time Jody went missing in the parking lot of her apartment complex, but this van was never positively identified. Another neighbor reported that she heard a man banging and knocking on Jody's door the evening before she went missing, but this person has never been identified either. Authorities believe that Jody was kidnapped just after 4 a.m. that morning. 
So right off the bat, since Jody was a pretty prominent person in the city, police wondered if maybe a deranged fan did this. You know, Jody was a TV personality and many knew who she was around town. And a lot of times people watch these anchors every day. You know, every morning they wake up and they're in their home with them. They're watching them on TV. And I think people feel like they almost know them personally. And everyone had a reason to be suspicious that this could be something that maybe a stalker or a crazed fan would be involved with because in October 1994, nine months before she disappeared, Jody reported being followed by a black truck when she was out jogging one day. She was reportedly pretty upset and rattled by the whole thing. But, you know, police investigating, there really wasn't anyone in particular that police could point the finger to in this area of being a stalker or a fan. But one suspect really did stick out to police, though. His name is John Van Sice. John was an older friend of Jody's, and he actually pulled up to Jody's apartment in the the morning she went missing as police were investigating and kind of inserted himself into the case from the jump. And he said, oh, I was actually the last person to see Jody." The night before she vanished, John claimed that she visited him at his home to watch a home video of a birthday party that he had thrown for Jody weeks before. John was recently single and would hang out with Jody and her friends a lot, although John made it seem like he and Jody were just best friends, and he even told people that he thought of Jody like a daughter. But Jody's friends and coworkers had a much different view of him and his motives towards Jody. So I mentioned the birthday party that he organized and threw for Jody. So video footage from that birthday party was analyzed by an FBI investigator, and he said that every time Jody would dance or spend time with another guy, John would have laser focus on Jody and whoever she was talking to. He said he had a really evil look in his eyes like he was really pissed off. According to Jody's sister, Jody knew that John was interested in her and that the feeling wasn't mutual, as in he wanted to be more than friends and Jody did not. Jody's sister also said that he behaved really strangely towards her and Jody's family after the disappearance. Amy, that producer at the station, also had extreme suspicions about John because supposedly John called the station the morning Jody disappeared, asking where she was, where's Jody, and Amy was extremely suspicious by this, as this was before anyone knew Jody was missing. Also, it's really telling that he inserted himself in the case, as we've seen and learned through other cases like this. A lot of times the 
Perp will insert himself into the case one way or another. A lot of them really like the attention. They like to be involved. They want to know what police know. And a lot of times they like to lead them in other directions and, you know, give them other suspects and leads to hang on to all the while they were the ones that did it. John Van Sice was polygraphed in connection with Jody's case and proudly told everyone that he passed, which was weird. And we all know polygraphs can really go either way and are generally not admissible in court. So, but to this day, John denies any involvement in her disappearance But the thing, yeah, the thing that I think about with that is just that strange phone call to the news station that morning. You know, I, that to me, I don't know, that's just, it's strange. You know, and as I said, it was before anyone knew that she was missing. So why he would call. And I think they, you know, asked Amy, well, would he routinely call there? And she's like, no, it wasn't like a normal thing that, you know, and he, again, he wasn't her boyfriend or anything or her husband or it's just, it was very weird for this so-called friend to be so invested in Jody, her whereabouts, what she's doing. But we'll get into that. Another crazy thing about John was that he told everybody that he named his boat after Jody. So this guy had a boat. And he's naming it for this girl that he says he sees as a daughter or a friend. And he's throwing birthday parties for her. All I can say is I'm, like I said, I'm 30 years old. No guy friend that's just a friend has ever thrown me a birthday party. Never. Nor has anyone named a boat after me. That seems like something really, I've never been married, but that's just like seems very personal or some like something, I don't know that like a boyfriend or a husband would do or a guy that wants to be your boyfriend and is making grand gestures to win you over. But he's doing all this and says he's the last person that's our but says that, you know, he's just her friend. He didn't have any, he said, oh, I didn't have any interest in being more. Hmm, Yeah, not really buying that. Amy Coons also stated later that she had a pretty intimidating run-in with John at a laundromat after Jody went missing. She said that he acted very strangely, towards her. And at that point, Amy was very vocal around town about her suspicions of John. And people knew that around town. So I feel like this maybe was kind of a like scare tactic on his end to, you know, kind of scare her from maybe talking about him anymore. And another interesting piece of information that has actually recently come out about the case was that a private investigator came forward with evidence that Jody had started a new relationship 10 days before she went missing. 
This individual has never been named, but he had left a voicemail for Jody when she went missing. And I read a little bit more on the uh, the you know man in question, the new relationship, and I didn't see anything where he was you know giving any, any sort of indication that he thought he was involved, but that this was just something new in her life was that she was dating um, someone new. So police investigated the disappearance and followed leads, but were never really able to establish any or find any evidence to arrest a suspect. In 2001, Jody Husentrout was declared legally dead and things really kind of went quiet in her case. But people have remained very suspicious of John Van Sice, and he has stayed the primary person of interest. So after all this, John Van Sice actually moved out of Mason City to Arizona, and he continued to deny any involvement. But in 2004, police searched a basement of a home formerly occupied by John, but that didn't yield any new information. And in 2017, a search warrant was executed against John Van Sice seeking GPS for two of his cars, but this also unfortunately didn't yield any new information. The last thing I heard about John Van Sice, who's now 74 years old, was that he came out and said that he has Alzheimer's and that would really prohibit him from contributing any more to Jody's case. So to me, the person responsible would likely be someone who was familiar with Jody's routine. Like we talked about, news anchors, they have a very, their hours are different. I mean, they work different hours than most, you know, average people. They go into work at different times. So I think about this case and I think it had to be somebody that knew she would be up around that time period. And I mean, why else would anyone be outside her place at 4 a.m.? Most people are usually inside asleep at that time. So unless it was just a random chance abduction, which it very possibly could have been, you know, I mean, very possibly could have been, but I definitely lean more towards someone who knew Jody personally, knew her schedule, um, knew how she operated, and I definitely lean towards John being responsible or involved in the case somewhere or another. You know, I'm, I'm a woman. So I, I know what it's like to be around someone who you kind of know wants to be more than friends with you or they're interested in you. And then when you kind of let them know that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm actually not interested. They really turn on you pretty quickly, don't they? One second, they are asking you out and telling you how great you are and you're beautiful and this and they're doing this for you. And they're, 
I mean, they're like Prince Charming. And then the second that there is a rejection and you're kind of like, oh, you know, I don't feel that way about you. Whoo. Oh, my Lord. I mean, they lose it. And that's not all men. I mean, some men, you know, and I'm not saying that's also just men. I think some women get, you know, that that kind of the feeling of rejection, I think, hits something deep you know, within people that, you know, it's just that rejection. It's just being that shut down. It's, you know, I mean, it's never, it's never a fun feeling to be rejected, but I think everybody knows or knows of somebody, whether it was a, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, anybody that has had to tell somebody no, that they're not interested. And, you know, you see them kind of come back and they start, I mean, they start calling you names tearing you down, telling you that you're X, Y, Z, and that, you know, they weren't even interested anyways. So I don't know. To me, I, you know, I look at that and I wonder, was that what was going on with Jody and John? You know, is that maybe what happened? You know, he likes her. Now she's kind of starting to date someone new. And he realizes that, you know, it doesn't matter that he named the boat after. It doesn't matter that he threw, threw her a party you know, he doesn't have a chance with her. I don't know. You know, all I can speak on is that I'm, you know, I'm, I, from my experience with guys and, you know, thank goodness I've never been in that type of position or situation. But would I necessarily hang around some guys, you know, that I've come encounter with that I've, I've, you know, said no to and seen them get kind of weird? Would I, I don't know. I don't know. I think some people are capable of some pretty weird things. So this case is really one of those that kind of haunts you. You know, after all these years, it's still unsolved. And I feel so bad for Jody and her family that they've never gotten justice or been able to see anybody held responsible for this. You know, there's also a special... There's a special place in this, you know, the true crime area where women are targeted at work or going to work or, you know, just kind of, I'm like, real. I mean, it's just, that's so discouraging, you know? I mean, I think most people are just out here trying to, you know, make a living, trying to, you know, uphold to their responsibilities in life and to just, you know... And I've covered quite a few of those cases because those really, you know, not all the, you know, every disappearance is, you know, tragic and troubling. But I think the ones where women and women are kind of targeted in the workplace or they're, yeah, just, I don't know, it just makes me, kind of makes me uh, sick. But, you know, the best thing that we can do is to keep these unsolved cases alive. You know, keep talking about these victims, keep talking about what happened, keep talking about, you know, because someone somewhere knows something, you know, and that's the case, that's with every case is, you know, people that are involved in these kind of things, they do like to talk, you know, especially if they've gotten away with it for, you know, an extended period of time. They like to talk, they like to brag, um, you know, a couple drinks in, a lot of people get pretty chatty, 
And they like to tell you about the things that they've done. And I think it's, it's been proven that it's not just police and detectives that solve these cases. You know, it's people like you and me who keep the conversation alive, keep asking questions. You know, I think police and detectives, you know, do a great job of doing what they can, but a lot of times they just, there's not enough resources for them to keep investigating. And that's not with every case. I'm not saying that. I think there's some cases that, yeah, I don't, you know, you see, you know, unsolved you know, disappearances or people going missing or really any of that kind of um, case that they don't really get the attention, you know, and that's, that's tragic in itself. But, you know, I think we as people have so much more power than I think we, I don't think we even know, you know, that you yourself have so much power to investigate. And, and like I said, ask questions, continue talking about it because, You know, it could be you that solves this case, which is, you know, that's that's pretty cool stuff. As always, make sure you are following Avery After Dark on TikTok and YouTube, and be sure to share this with your friends and your family. I thank you all so much for your support, and I will see you next episode. Bye, guys.